Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, we spoke last week, and in the meantime, I, I truly enjoyed my week of checking on flight trackers and learning how many times the same trade can be close to finalized in, in a three-day span. So I, I had a blast this week. Uh, how, how about you? How are you doing? <laughs> I, I don't know if I would put it that way. It was bizarre between all the Soto stuff, uh, rumors flying about, and then happening, and then the bizarreness of the Shohei Otani situation. Yeah. Uh, it was, I will say it was an interesting word, you know, like the old saying, you know, may, may your life be interesting. I'm paraphrasing it. May you live through interesting times. We have. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's especially funny that a week ago this time, you know, we're recording this on Sunday afternoon, uh, a week ago this time, everyone was starting to complain about how the winter meetings were going so slow and Otani and Soto are holding everything up. And then, uh, yeah, the, the floodgates are open. Um, as we speak, we are waiting for further news on a Christian Bethancourt trade to the Marlins that seems like it's happening and a potential Dodgers-Yankees roster clearing trade that was hinted at like two hours ago and we haven't heard anything about since. So we're going to be keeping tabs on that while we record and, and see if we have any breaking news during the next hour and a half or so. Um, but in the meantime, plenty to talk about. Um, I guess, you know, I guess if we have to talk about Shohei Otani, we can, <laughs> no, um, yeah, I, 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 the second this, the news came through on Otani and we can, if we want to talk about the, the whole rigmarole of, of the Toronto nonsense, we can, but the second the actual news came through, I immediately fired off a tweet to, uh, an email to John that just said, oh my God, Otani. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that was kind of everyone's take on it i was actually um i was out at a card show because I, I collect baseball cards and you could just feel it pulse through the room <laughs> as everybody realized at the same time and kind of just went holy crap <laughs> so otani signs with the dodgers for 10 years and 700 million american dollars um not finalized quite yet uh, there are roster considerations for the dodgers who still haven't fit joe kelly onto their roster and they, they kind of need to do that one first um as well as potentially a physical that needs to happen that one's a little bit fuzzier but definitely the roster spot needs to be cleared up to allow for otani um very very important to mention up front that that 700 million is heavily deferred we don't know the specifics on that quite yet but that if it's if it's very heavily deferred and, and according to the reports it's like to a historic degree then that's going to significantly decrease the present value of the contract. So, yeah, John, I'll let you take it from here. Give your kind of thoughts on just the, the structure of it and the deferrals and what the model expected for Otani and where we might kind of settle in compared to that with the present value. What's what's your take on all of this? Yeah, so so we were, I think, one of the uh, team, one of the outlets that was a little bit higher on Otani's contract. We had him for five thirty-three point eight over ten years, I believe, according to our model. And that's just baseball value. It's not including any marketing or merchandise or what have you. Um, so let's call it roughly fifty-four million a year. So as rumors started progressing of bids and such, you know, people started to think, could he get six? And so when we finally heard the news from Jeff Passan and started with a seven, everyone's 
there that I know, everyone's, including mine, everyone's jaw dropped. So like seven. <laughs> now, so, but I think that's largely for show. If you guys follow us, any of you listeners, you know, we sort of stick to valuation and numbers and what they really mean. And, and just on that to the point, we haven't heard what the, <clears throat> excuse me, what the final breakdown is. We probably will after the final news has been announced. There's a press, con- press conference and, sh- and, and so on. But it's heavily deferred, which means it's really not 700. It's just that number is just there for show. It's really not. On paper, maybe, but in reality, the purchasing power of that when you account for deflation, uh, inflation and all the, all the ter- um, deferrals. You know, we, people are making stuff up right now and, and, and trying to gauge where it could ultimately land in terms of actual value. And some are in the fives, some are even in the fours, but it's not seven. That's going to be pretty clear. So seven is just like, yeah, that's a shocking number, but it's really not that shocking when you crunch the numbers and do the math, as we will in the next couple of days. I should mention that uh, the league will do that because they'll apply a discount, and the um, the players' union will, will do that as well because they want to make sure that it's right. So once we get all that number crunching down, we'll figure out what the contract is really worth. I'm guessing it's going to be somewhere in the five-ish range, but we'll see. Yeah, and I could even see it coming in a bit above that or on the higher end of 500 um obviously this is all speculation from kind of everyone involved like you're saying i think the closest we've gotten to an actual like report is i think passing said it's quote expected to settle in the range of 40 to 50 million um but even that's kind of that's that's a soft report that's that's nothing definitive here at all um yeah but i i think I think it's very important to note that the model's estimate there doesn't include those kind of market factors, the, the marketing and, and additional advertising and all of those, I don't want to say intangibles, but all of those like extra off-field value revenue ads that Otani provides that are truly one of one, like truly unique. Um, that's the kind of stuff that's not going to get factored too heavily for a free agent like Aaron Judge even like even even Judge playing in the largest media market and being a superstar does not drive eyeballs and attention and revenue the same way that Otani does so it's it's kind of something that we haven't necessarily had to account for to this degree and I'm not sure we ever will have to account for again um and just something that we can't exactly put a number on because it's it's not something that we have eyeballs on it's not something we have stats for yeah it's not public so we can't so we stick to our knitting in terms of baseball uh value that's what we do Uh, but yeah you can imagine all kinds of people will be buying you know the entire country of japan will probably be buying new la hats right and um jerseys and all sorts of things as well as everybody around the, around the country and world so he's a global superstar so he's going to sell merch so there's no question and also attract more people to games and you know be more of a tv you know star in terms of uh you know they might you might find yourself seeing the dodgers on network programming is more than you already do so all of that's going to matter um and you know one of the things I would add is that the Dodgers own their own uh, cable TV sports network. And we talked about this in the last episode, which gives them a little bit more advantage to take it to, to because they've got more money coming in and it's stable income as opposed to other teams with without that. So that's going to help them as well. They'll get more eyeballs on that. Mm-hmm. And the other kind of consideration here that is tough to quantify. Like even even you know all is said and done, 
we get the deferral number and it still looks like some degree of a quote-unquote overpay it's hard to really quantify that because a lot of that overpay is going to come from some of these deferrals and those deferrals might not be paid by the current ownership like depending on how far out these go if the 10 it's a 10-year contract if the deferrals go another 10 or 20 years beyond that who knows what members of the current ownership group or organization are still there by the end of that so yes it's it's money that still needs to be paid and, and you know theoretically if there is a sale at some point of the team in this in the span of this like deferral period theoretically the fact that there is this money on the books that's owed does play a role there but that's such a like far out like theoretical thing and you know given that given that somebody's spending 700 million dollars here it's it's certainly something they account for and, and think about but it's something that's easy to kind of kick the can down the road on yeah right yeah yeah and we should mention if you haven't already the deferrals were shohei's idea um this did not come from the dodgers it was his idea because he wanted them to have a lower uh competitive talents competitive balance tax so that they could sign more players around him in other words, his first priority is to win, and it's always been his first priority. He's been very consistent about that. He seems to care more about winning than about money, and I know that's weird to say considering he just signed a contract for $700 million. But, but he's, because he's deferring it all, he's getting less than what we think he's getting, and he's doing it for the good of the team, which is consistent with his personality and his values and his goals. Um, uh, so uh, I think that's notable. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of along the lines of like an NBA player like restructuring their contract so their team can fit under the salary cap and also add that Kevin Durant star in free agency or or what have you. I'm I'm not an NBA guy. I, I come to understand that that happens in the NBA though. Um, it, it's kind of along those lines, and we've never really seen anything like that in MLB just because there's never really been a player on that magnitude. That there was a there's a great Fangraphs post from probably like 10 years ago at this point of like what LeBron's value, like peak LeBron James, what his value would have been on like a baseball equivalent, just because within basketball, your one player is able to change things so much. And I'm not suggesting that Otani is anywhere near that because at the end of the day, he is still just one spot in the lineup, one spot in the rotation, but he's as close to that as like baseball is ever going to get. And so that's, Kind of makes that an even more interesting parallel there with some of the, you know, contractual restructuring that happens in the NBA. Yeah, but the other point is because he's prioritizing being on a winning team, you know, you start to think about the players around him and compare it to what he has been on. And no offense to the Angels, but it was basically just him and Trout for the last five or six years. And now it's, you know, now it's Otani and Mookie and Freddie Freeman and Will Smith. And it goes on and on. So, like, yeah, <laughs> he's going to he's not. So he stood out more on the Angels team, um, partly because they weren't a winning team. He's in a awkward way. I'm saying this. He's going to stand out less because they are a winning team and they do have other stars. But that's what he wants. He wants to be one of the guys. Yeah, so I, I think overall, like it's it's just a clean fit, and it's it's weird to say that of a of a seven hundred million dollar contract that you know certainly could cause problems at some point, even if it is lower value for luxury tax purposes or for real dollar purposes. Um, that is still a lot of money to add on to a payroll that was already pretty high, and they're gonna really 
continue to be considering the luxury tax implications of this for years to come. And so I, I don't want to say that there's that the deal's without risk, especially when we haven't even said a word yet about Otani's elbow and what could be coming uh, of his future on the mound if, if he rebounds all the way or if he doesn't. Um, so there's certainly plenty of risk here involved for the Dodgers. Yeah. I mean, how, how could there not be? But I, I think the stars do kind of align in a way here where, you know, there's there's some floor, obviously, of, hey, even if somehow this guy first of all we we can't write off him coming back to the mound just the same as he ever is because he is such a freak of nature unicorn special athlete that if anyone can come back and be the same guy it's him so we we don't want to write that off but even if you know if disaster did strike on that front this was still one of the best hitters in baseball the last three years and he still brings all of these off-field qualities that we've discussed and you know maybe if something does happen and he can't pitch well maybe now he can go back to the outfield and provide value in that way so there's substantial floor here it's not just a 700 million dollar risk and if his arm goes kaput then that's down the tube like there's considerable floor here and it's it's a market and a team that can afford to take that risk and and especially one that has been frustrated so many of the last handful of seasons with some of these early playoff exits, despite the talent that they have there. Like it, it's just a logical choice to literally push all the chips in and say, we're taking this seriously. We want to be trying to win a world series every single year. And this is like the most definitive way we can show that. Yeah. So I want to explore that point you were just talking about, about the floor a little bit more. So when we're modeling for Shohei, it's easier to model him as a hitter because that's pretty concrete. The data is there, and you can pretty much model that out. You do standing, standard aging curves, but um, for the most part, that's a pretty reliable data point. The pitching is not a reliable data point because he's been he's had two surgeries now, and you don't know if he's going to come back the same if he does come back. Assume, let's assume for uh, scenario one, he comes back, and he's a starting pitcher again, and he picks up where he left off. That's probably... Um, slightly less than uh, of a probability than he comes back as a starter and then he's lost a couple of ticks of velocity, but he's figured out how to pitch. So he's still a reasonably good pitcher because you typically find that after two surgeries, you know, you lose a little something and there are a few examples out there, Uh, but you also have the risk of a third one. And there's very clear data that once you have three elbow surgeries, you're done. So now he's got two, and the clock is ticking on that. So then, then that creates the question of, do you want to use him as a starter? How many how many miles were left on that arm and that elbow? I don't know. Um, you know, it's been sp- speculation that they use him as a reliever, as a closer. Um, but then, yeah, there's the scenario you mentioned where even in the worst-case scenario where he doesn't pitch, then presumably he would play the outfield instead of being just a DH. And you can rely on his athleticism. He's got speed. He's got base running. He's a complete player and a, and a good enough athlete that you can do that with him. So the floor is probably, you know, hitting and playing the outfield and, and or hitting and being a closer. And then there's hitting and being a starter. You know, there's three, there's probably at least three different scenarios there. So we went with sort of the base case scenario of him coming back as a pitcher with slightly reduced cost uh, stuff. And then, and seeing goes from there, but it could go, those, those paths could sort of, <laughs> go different directions and intertwine. No one really knows. So at the end of the day, the Dodgers are betting on 
Otani the athlete, because he's an amazing athlete, and Otani the guy with the work ethic who will get the most out of himself. And that's pretty clear as well. So from that standpoint, I, you know, I think there is a high floor. Yeah. And this is a guy who has made an entire career out of proving doubters wrong, right? Like every, every sign of struggle, he's been told you can't do this two way thing. You got to pick one or the other. And, and now he is who he is. He's a two time MVP, the, the current MVP, the $700 million man, like he's every time he's met with that kind of adversity, he says, no, nah, I'm just going to go out and do my thing and it's going to be great. And it's hard to doubt a guy like that at this point. Like you can have valid concerns about where things are going to end up just from like a realism standpoint of, yeah, elbows are finicky and we don't love to see a guy who throws triple digits with a wipeout slider undergoing his second surgery. Like it's fair to be, reasonably concerned about that but i think if anybody has earned the benefit of the doubt by this point it's otani and uh, yeah i I continue to expect him to do both with a blom once he comes back from that uh from that surgery um one quick note from bill plunkett of the orange county register Uh, reportedly more than half of the contract is deferred lowering the cbt value possibly below 50 million so i think that's Again, we're still just kind of hearing these kind of vague numbers on it. Uh, we'll see if and when we actually get the full detailed breakdown. It feels like the uh, feels like the kind of thing where uh, John Heyman's going to have one of those tweets in a week where it's clearly yeah. a copy paste from the agency, like <laughs> the agent yep. source that he has and has all the specifics of the suite that he gets for his family in L.A. and the... <laughs> the 50k bonus he gets if he's somehow the comeback player of the year like all, all that nonsense um we're, we're gonna see one of those at some point here but uh for now yeah. it's, it's safe to assume that it's it's gonna be somewhere in that 40 50 40 to 50 million dollar a year range in in real money and in like luxury tax money yeah i mean i'm just waiting on the real number and i think it's gonna come sooner than we think because everyone's waiting on it so and so when people are back to work and crunching the numbers tomorrow we might find it's Monday or Tuesday, so we'll we'll get it. We'll, uh, but yeah, we'll see what the real math uh, turns out to be. Yep. Well, I think that's probably about all I have on Otani for right now. I mean, the, we, I, I could sit here and talk about Otani for another hour, but we have plenty else right. to get to. Uh, is there anything else you want to add in? No, let's move on. There's other stuff. Yes, there's uh, one, one really <laughs> big one in particular. Let's, let's talk about Juan Soto. Uh, so Juan Soto was traded. Uh, it's it's been oft speculated, you know, r- really for the last year or so, but especially in the last few months. Um, th- There's a little bit of buzz at the last trade deadline with the Padres underperforming, but they hung on to him, and then this offseason everything seemed to kind of go south for them. They lost almost an entire pitching staff to free agency. Uh, their their payroll was already set to be kind of restricted due to some overspending last year and then they lost their principal chairman owner uh, whatever his direct title was uh, peter seidler when he passed away and he was really the driving force behind their spending so it really seemed like all the stars were kind of aligned for a soto trade uh, in in order for the padres to be able to actually build a team they really needed to clear money and he was going to be the easiest way for them to do so um, and, and pretty early on, the Yankees emerged as like one of the only true contenders there that could not only afford to take on his $33 million 
arbitration estimate for 2024, but also had the incentive to do so and to, to give up significant talent in order to do so. And it took a while for it to come together. We were hearing rumors about it for weeks. And in the last couple days of it, it, it seemed like we were just getting the same updates over and over and over again, but eventually went through. The final trade ended up being Soto, who we had at 23.8 million in median trade value, and Trent Grisham, who we had at 10.1. Uh, those two headed to the Yankees in exchange for right-handed pitchers Michael King at 33.4, Drew Thorpe, prospect at 11, Johnny Brito at 4.9, Randy Vasquez at 5.9, and catcher Kyle Higashioka at 1.8. So there's a pretty sizable gap there. Uh, the deal ended up being rejected by the model. There's a lot to unpack here about kind of the different elements of this deal, the different players. I think we can, I think we can quickly breeze through kind of the the back half of the deal, the the package coming from New York. Um, Higashioka, he's just, I, I don't want to say a warm body. That's kind of offensive, but the <laughs> the Padres definitely needed a backup catcher. Austin Nola wasn't really doing it for them. Uh, they ended up non-tendering him, I believe. And uh, Luis Camposano, who was a former top prospect, he showed some flashes last year, but he really doesn't have the track record. And so if they're going to contend, they need another veteran back there. And Higashioka gets good reviews from pitching staffs. And so makes makes sense that they would be targeting him here. Uh, Johnny Brito and Randy Vasquez, they're both kind of these fringy prospect swingman types who have gotten some big league like cup of coffee type but but haven't really established themselves yet but it's necessary pitching depth that the Padres really needed coming into this and then Drew Thorpe is a name with some helium and we have him at 11 it's very possible that he gets bumped up at some point this offseason he I believe he was baseball America's minor league pitcher of the year last year and so that was a name that uh, the Padres definitely were going to be targeting, and uh, especially because he's likely to be MLB ready at some point in 2024. So those are kind of the easy names of the deal that we can just kind of run through quickly there. I'm going to pass it to you, John, to uh, I think we probably want to start with Michael King and, and why we're at 33.4 on him, and then we can talk Soto and Grisham as well. Sure. So Michael King, um, you know, his numbers, when they – uh, you know, I, he was always a swing man, right? So you think 33.4, that seems high for Michael King. And I agree. When I first saw it, I, I really had to double check things. Um, but if you look, if you dig into the metrics and see how good he was as a starter, when he, it was phenomenal. And we've seen this happen before where other teams notice this and they say, okay, we're paying for that. We want that. And I believe that's what happened here with the Padres really wanting Michael King and insisting that he be in the deal. Um, so here's the other thing. The reason his surplus value is high is because a he's got two years of control. Um, B he's he's projected by Steamer to for like two point one, and that's even conservative with a sort of a split between starting and relieving. So if you figure there's four WAR uh, ish, um, you know that he's going to produce in the next two years. I know there's some injury risk, but even with that, let's say four years, um, the going rate for a good starting pitcher is around uh, 10, 10 million per WAR. So that's forty million. Now, he's only going to make two and a half this year and figure about four-ish next year. So that's $6.5 million in salary. So you sub subtract the 40 minus the 6, 5. And that's how we get to 33.4. And then we cross-check it and say, okay, that's high. But is it really? Um, we do note that uh, Nick Martinez, who's sort of a similar profile, kind of a swingman type, who 
the uh, market views as a starter just got two years and 26 million from the rats so 13 million in av uh, he's only projected by steamer for one and a half war so figure three war over the next two years it's a two-year deal so you got so if if michael king is better you know by at least one war so he's going to get and and martinez got 13 million here so attack on another 13 for that and you're right there so that kind of validated that if king were a free agent on a two-year deal he would get something close to two slash 40. so we figured okay that's feels high but i get it um so uh yeah that's where that's coming from and i i've since seen a lot of sort of analysis that king is going to be you know, he could even be the ace of the rotation because uh, he's kind of on a hot streak and he's found a new pitch and he may be better than Musgrove and Darvish in that rotation. So that's right. Now there's some risk there. I will grant you that. Um, but that's where that's coming from. Yeah, and it's it's not possible to add a pitcher that talented in a deal for a rental, regardless of how good the rental is. You You can't get a pitcher with that kind of talent without some risk. And so that's kind of the, the cost of doing business here and, and, and where the Padres are. Um, and I think, and we can use this as an opportunity to get into Soto's value and where he is, which we have discussed before on the podcast. But I think at my kind of, the way I judge a lot of these bigger trades that, especially the ones that have a little bit of a gap is like, how, if I play like true devil's advocate, how do things still look here? And so if I play a devil's advocate, with King and I say, okay, yes, he's going to earn two and a half million this year, but if you're expecting him to be a full-time starter, you know, maybe he gets more than the usual arbitration boost. Okay. Maybe instead of four-ish million next year, double it, call it 8 million. Okay. Now we've bumped down his surplus to 29-ish. Okay. And, and let's say, you know, maybe we need to increase the injury risk factor because this is a guy who hasn't started full-time and Maybe you can't expect him to make 30 starts. Maybe it's going to be more like 25 or something. So maybe you need to bump things down a little bit there. And maybe with a transition to full starting, maybe his stuff takes a slight step back. Okay, let's bump him down. We're still in that like 25-ish range. Okay. I don't think there's any room necessarily to bump Juan Soto up just because he's a defensively limited player. He's on a one-year deal. He's expected to earn about $33 million. He's a phenomenal hitter and, and still in the prime of his career, so he has a lot going for him. But if you look at his field value, it's in that like 60 million-ish range. Well, that's something like a six-war projection, and he wasn't worth six wins last year. That that's, that's baking in some positive regression for him. So it's already kind of giving him credit for his for his youth and his upside and all of that so i i have a hard time skewing that number much higher at all and so what we have is okay i feel pretty good about that 23.8 number for soto and you know even if i play absolute devil's advocate and bump michael king down for that salary consideration for the injury and like transition to the rotation risk i still have him down to like 24 ish which means like maybe soto for king would be you know, in this devil's advocate universe, maybe that's like a fair one for one. And then you look at the rest of the package on both sides and it's still a pretty lopsided deal. It's still, a, it still would come through as an overpay for the Yankees. So that, that's just a way that I find yeah. it useful to evaluate some of these trades is to see, okay, the, the, the ones that I have the questions about, if I do wiggle with their value a little bit, how does the trade look after that? And it still does look like an overpay. So I think, 
I think that makes me feel even better about how the model feels about all of the pieces in this trade. And, and we can get to this later as well, but I just want to mention that overpay doesn't necessarily mean bad deal. It doesn't yeah. mean the Yankees messed up. It, it just means that they, they paid more than we thought they should. It, yeah, I mean, surplus value is the dominant way that we feel, based on all the data we've seen, that most trades occur on. But it's not the only one. There are other considerations. There's fit, and sometimes you just need field value. And this is a clear case of the Yankees needing f field value, and that's why they overpaid. I mean, we I agree with you on the Soto point. I mean, if you add 33 plus the 23.8, round up to 24 let's say so that's 57 million on a one-year aav where the previous record was 43 verlander and scherzer so we already thought we were in nosebleed <laughs> territory there if you add up the numbers the implied numbers of the overpay what they actually paid for it was closer to 80 million for one year of soto which is absurd 57 was already an absurd territory 80 is ridiculous well beyond so you know that cross check seems to suggest that it was <laughs> an absurd overpay as well. Um, and I would add that, again, we have Drew Thorpe at 11, and not all of the experts have weighed in yet on what his prospect value really is. So we're, we might actually have bumped him up if the trade happened later in time. So, you know, you can bump down uh, King a little bit, and you can bump up Thorpe a little. You're still in way overpay territory. So no matter how you slice it, I think we're, we're right. Yeah, and I think from the Yankees' perspective, what I was kind of getting at is you are more or less out of the race for Otani. It seemed like Otani was pretty clear the whole time that he wanted to stay on the West Coast. You know, he, he the Blue Jays were a contender and the Cubs were a contender for him. The West Coast has always seemed like it's his preference, though, and, and specifically it seems like he's always been kind of staying away from New York, and that's just kind of who he is he doesn't need that full like he are, he has enough spotlight on him as is he doesn't need that new york um additional pressure and, and limelight that's just not not who he is um and so it seemed like for that and, and maybe some other reasons he was not an option for the yankees and so if the yankees need to make a big splash and really improve that offense especially from the left side and you're not looking at otani it's kind of Soto, and then who's the next best left-handed hitter on the market? Like, was it Jimer Candelario, who ended up signing a three-year deal? Is it... I, I can't even think of anyone else. Bellinger. That's even kind of a... Bellinger. Yeah, uh, Bellinger. Bellinger, yes. But plenty of reasons to have questions and concerns about yeah. his contract and his projections. So there's really not many other options for them available, and... If Preller, as he is known to do, is driving a hard bargain here and and holding the line at his demands, you, you kind of have no choice but to do it. The, the way I worded it in, in, the, in the tweet thread was like, if, if the Padres insisted on getting King in this deal, which makes sense, you know, with where they are and how they want to contend, he's a very attractive player for them. And if they're insisting that he has to be the headliner, and then they're insisting that Thorpe has to be in the deal, you're not going to let either of those two guys stop you from getting Juan Soto, from getting the one guy that you really need to get this offseason to improve your team. Like, I mean, that's that's not going to be the line. Yeah, and the other point I would add on that is the other three guys, you can call them throw-ins, you know, they've got 
values in the low single digits, they're not nothing because they'll contribute and they've got like, you know, six years of control each or in the case of the two pitchers. But I think Gashioka is a free agent after this year. But anyway, you're going to get some value out of those guys over a longer period of time. It's going to be back end, bullpen, whatever, but it's going to be something, right? Um, and then, you know, so so the Padre, so if you look at it on a, just a pure value deal, and by the way, I saw AJ Preller make comments like, um, like it's all about value for me. Like it, during the winter meetings when he had a press conference, he said that, and that caught my eye. Like, okay, it's like reinforcing the fact that it, this was before the Soto trade was announced. It's reinforcing that he's he wants to make the best possible deal and get a lot of value for his player, and he did, and so good for him. So the Padres should feel. I know they're going to have mixed feelings of losing Soto, but they should feel like on paper they got a really good deal. They've got a King is a potential ace for two years at ridiculously low salary. And, you know, Thorpe could end up being like a really core starter of rotation for the next six years or wherever they bring him up. Could be six and a half. And he got some smaller players after that. Uh, but I also think it's, you know, Obviously, Yankee fans are delighted and excited because, from a fan standpoint, you got one Soto. How could you? Who, who cares? It's not your money, <laughs> you know. And you know, from their standpoint, they didn't give away any stars. They gave away some pieces, right? But it's not like they're losing sleep over it. So they're looking at it from a baseball value, and that's clearly what the front office is doing because they know they are under pressure to produce a winner next year. So from that standpoint, I'm, I, I you know, you can, I'm not going to call it fair, but I will see it make sense for both sides. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and. On the Padres side of that, they, you know, by by our current understanding of things like run differential and one run games and and things like that, extra inning performance, the Padres got insanely unlucky last year and probably should have been a playoff team with with the team that they had. And so theoretically, you run back the same team, just reroll the simulation kind of, and 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 the the variance goes not even your way but just goes you know average as it's supposed to go it's a playoff team the problem of course is you can't just easily run back that same team you have a lot of guys leaving for free agency you had Blake Snell having a career year and and Josh Hader performing at the peak of his ability and those guys were both due for big raises in free agency, so you really can't bring them back, especially if you have to cut payroll from there. So so considering all of that, you really had to trade Soto. And if you're going to trade Soto and, and you know take something from the offense, you really need to do it to add to the pitching staff. And I'm not suggesting in any way that King or Thorpe or... Uh, or Brito or Vasquez, that any of the four of them are going to step in and be what Blake Snell was for the Padres in 2023. But would I be shocked if King was along the lines of what Blake Snell is going to be in 2024? No. Would I be shocked if those four guys combined to kind of replicate the production from Seth Lugo and Michael Waka and Nick Martinez last year? No, I, I think that's a pretty safe expectation for those four guys. And so... From that Padres perspective, yes, you've lost, you know, maybe five wins on offense, five or six wins um, by trading that year of Soto. But you've theoretically replaced the four to five wins in the rotation that you lost with, with some of those free agents. And you freed up enough cash that now you can actually make some of the other moves you need to make for your roster. And obviously this isn't a scenario they would have liked to be in. In a perfect world, they keep Soto and just spend more, whether that's bringing back Hader or Snell or 
making a trade for Corbin Burns or whatever it is. But given their limitations, I think this was the best they could do. And I think it's, you know, really good for them. Like, I, I, I think they exceeded my expectations of what they could do in this trade and set themselves up well to actually contend next year, even against the Dodgers team that now has Shohei Otani. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, the baseball world knows that they were in a tight spot. Preller had to cut his budget. It was clearly a mandate from ownership. You know, they've, they've lost their their uh, RSN cable deal, which was a lot of money, and their owner died. And we've been through all this, but um, yeah. He he had to cut. He had to trade Soto for financial reasons because that thirty three million dollars was staring him in the face. And and now he can do more with the money he saved. And brilliantly, he got a potential ace pitcher who's making two and a half million a year. So there's plenty of value there, and there's plenty of now space to work with. So, um, and I think he's going to be smart about it. The other thing I would point out is, as we look at, if you are a subscriber to our our GM level, you'll see in the uh, farm system rankings that they have climbed up pretty high because they've got the top of their farm is back. And so he's got some ammunition to work with if he wants to trade for like an impact player or two or another pitcher of impact. Like he, you can see him trading for a glass now or a cease or something. He's got the ammunition to do that and still keep his budget down. And that's another thing to watch out for, I think. Yeah, and there were even rumors during the the trade talks for Soto that they were interested in Corbin Burns, which seemed like a bit of a head scratcher. He's going to, you know, yeah. he's not nowhere near Soto levels. He's he's projected to earn about 15 million, so about less than half of what Soto was projected to earn. But it is still a bit of a head scratcher, but I, I think it just speaks to to kind of what you're saying here that obviously this Soto move was not throwing in the towel. It's obviously made with a site on on opening up that flexibility so they could add and win in 2024. And I don't think I'd be shocked by something like Glassnow or Burns. I think Glassnow is making uh, 22, 25 million, somewhere in that range. Um, so maybe more would need to be done to allow yeah. that to happen. And yeah, that kind of goes with the other rumor that we've heard about them the last week or two is that they're shopping Jake Cronenworth. Um, Cronenworth, different situ situation than Juan Soto. We have him about $20 million underwater, so negative 20.4 surplus. Um, that's because he's on a longer guaranteed contract. He's already 30 years old. He's more of a utility type, and 2023 was not a very good year for him. Yeah, and, so and if you look I backwards, could... his number's been going down every year. Yeah, and, and so I could see that number, that negative 20, skewing even a little bit lower than it is right now. So you figure... Okay, there's two ways to to compensate for that. Either they eat some of the contract, which might just be necessary to facilitate a move, but isn't their preference, considering that the main reason they want to move the guy is so they can open up some money. So why would they pay money to do it? And then option number two is you attach enough prospect value that it offsets that negative surplus. And I think that's an option that they have now. Um, I think they right. they'd probably prefer to keep him around i think they really like him that's that's why they handed him the contract and even if the numbers aren't going where you'd like them to go he's been touted as like a, a high makeup kind of guy and he plays all over the field for them and, and just one of those guys that's kind of good to have on your roster and and seems well liked in the clubhouse there so i think you know if, if they really had their choice they'd keep him but if they find themselves really being hamstrung by their their financial constraints further in the offseason and you know they decide that the best thing for their team would be to make one of those aggressive 
Burns or Glass now moves, and, and they need the flexibility to do so. I think you can see them attaching a Dylan Lesko to Cronenworth to get him off the books. Where does that end up going? Who knows? I, I'm, I'm not sure who has the payroll flexibility for that. You know, maybe just, just throwing a team out there, the Blue Jays, considering they were... They had enough flexibility to be playing in both the Soto market and the Otani market. And obviously saying I'll spend a bunch of money on Juan Soto or I'll spend a bunch of money on Shohei Otani does not necessarily mean I'm going to be willing to spend a bunch of money on Jake Cronenworth. But they do have some infield needs of their own. And if they believe in a bounce back, it's a, it's a decent way to buy a prospect. So that's yeah. pure speculation. Um, but we did hear that rumor that Cronenworth could be the next one on the move. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, I think I think that makes a ton of sense, and they I could see Preller getting creative and attaching a prospect to it. So uh, yeah, and the Blue Jays is not a bad call in terms of landing because he could play second for them, or you know they liked Whit Merrifield moving around for them. They 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 like that kind of player. So uh, sure. And those two teams have already been talking, so they already have kind of identified some of the names they like, and we heard right. that. Alec Manoa was a name the Padres might be interested in. So maybe you expand the deal a little bit, get him in there. I, I don't know. I, the more I talk about it, the more I kind of talk myself into it. Rewinding a bit, getting back to Soto and, and specifically back to the Yankees here. Um, the other two notes I want to point out. Um, one, as we've said many, many times before, our model and our values are not fit to specific team needs, specific team situations. They are an aggregate of the market. And as a result, you know, the, for example, 23.8 million surplus on Soto is what we kind of would expect him to have in surplus value to the average team. The Yankees are not the average team. If the Yankees have already decided that they're going to be blowing past the luxury tax, and it really sounds like they are since they're pretty heavy in the market for Yamamoto as well this offseason. And if they've already made this determination that they're going to just say, screw it, they need to win, we're going to spend all the money it takes, then maybe the, the bar shifts a little bit. Maybe $1 million worth of field value is not equal to $1 million worth of salary. Maybe that skews a little bit and, you know, you're valuing the field value 20% more than you're valuing the actual dollars and cents. And if you're looking at it that way, then that $33 million for Soto isn't as much of an inhibitor for that team as it would be for the average team. So those are the kinds of things that the model does not take into account because we feel that would be maybe a little bit too subjective. And until the Yankees started getting heavy for Soto here, we really didn't have that indication that they would really be opening the checkbooks that much. So it, it feels a little bit revisionist history for us to say, yeah, oh, well, well, Soto should have been higher because the Yankees yeah. don't care about the money. Like that's that's a little bit too nitty gritty. Yeah, and keep a reminder, you know, our we're in the business of providing a trading platform as well for all of our users and they love it. So they want to explore what would Soto get from the market if it were to the Blue Jays or some other team. Or, and it's not always just going to be the Yankees, even if, it's, even if it's been reported in the press that there's rumors there. So we want to open that field up. And if you're opening up the field, then you have to make it an aggregate. That said, I think one of the things we're going to look to in the future is how to at least sort of account for the differences between team needs, like the deadline, for example. So, you know, I'm not promising anything, but we're going to at least explore that because I know a lot of people um, have asked us to do that and I've 
I've often thought about it myself. So, um, you know, we, we can we can see if we can play around with some uh, options a little bit in the future. But for now, yeah, it's aggregate to the market. Right. And the other point I wanted to make, and this was something we saw on Twitter a ton from from posting this in, in response to some of our tweets about this deal, was, oh, well, that doesn't account for, you know, the added value that now the Yankees have exclusive negotiating rights with Soto and can sign him to an extension. We don't factor that into the model, and it's especially apparent in cases like this that it, it really shouldn't be. Reason one being, you know, that's such an intangible addition. How do we, how do you model for the probability that somebody will sign an extension once they've been acquired in one of these, in one of these deals? Uh, that's, it's a very case by case kind of thing. We can't just say, oh, 50% of the time it leads to an extension because that's, that really just takes any kind of context out of the equation. Point number two is that any extension that the, the two sides do agree to is likely to be right at market rate. It's going to be now, now that Soto is only a year away from free agency, you're not getting any kind of hometown or, you know, financial security type of discount. It's going to be right around where he would be as a free agent. And that's even before you get to the Scott Boris of it all and, and how he's not known to sign his higher profile clients to extensions in cases like these, like, that that makes it even a harder a harder argument to make that they're going to be able to lock him up now now could they sure and i think even if you're saying the yankees are going to sign juan soto to a market rate deal you know 10 years 500 million whatever it is i think either even if you're saying that and that there's not going to be any surplus on the deal on the deal i think it's fine for the yankees to say we value Soto a little higher because we think we might be able to do this because we just, just the inherent, again, it's kind of the field value versus salary question. The fact that we get to employ him is benefit to us enough. Even if it's that that's at a zero surplus rate, we want to employ him. We want him on our team for the next decade or whatever. So we're going to make that happen. And we count that as kind of a bonus. I think that's fine, but I think that's such a, such a unique case and such a specific scenario and it's not something that we can universally apply to all players in this scenario and not something that we can really quantify either yeah and i've thought about this a lot and you know people have asked us about this a lot as well like you know sometimes we get smart alex to say oh look garrett cole only has whatever his surplus value is now off the top of my head you know oh you know we can just get a prospect for him like of course they're not going to do that because they value Garrett Cole and they know he's on a big contract. And so there's not a whole lot of surplus value to it. As he gets older, that will decline. So yes, there's, um, so, so I guess what we're saying is that, um, by and large, for the most part, you know, surplus value is what is what trades are based on, but you know, there's a, there's an, there's a sort of an unquantifiable value to having the guy on the team, in other words, just focusing on the field value estimates. They're, all teams are aware that big contracts don't have a lot of surplus value typically, and often they're, they're negative. Uh, but they may value. But they're also trying to win. See, the, the, they're not just, just they're not just asset managers, right? Doing the 
pluses and minuses of a contract. They're also trying to win. So from that standpoint, they, they need a guy who can help them win. So Garrett Cole will not, never be traded for that reason. Same with, uh, in this case, with Soto. So, but we can't quantify that necessarily. I've never seen a model that can. And so we're going with surplus value because it is the dominant form of currency in trades. And, you know, so there's going to be a little bit of variance in situations like this where the the, the desire to win will outweigh the surplus value. And I think that's a, that's a relevant point in this deal. Yeah, the surplus value, you know, it, it is the way that we have found that front offices operate. They need to consider salaries when they make these deals. But surplus value alone does not win baseball games right if right. you just random name uh chris taylor dodgers you know if if at the beginning of his career you signed him to a 20-year deal that paid him a million dollars each year well congratulations that's a ton of surplus value but it's still only like two to three wins a year on average and you know maybe a little bit less near the back end of that deal and maybe there's one or two years where he's a little better than that and so on a field value perspective, it's still not like a ton. And that alone, you know, a whole team of those types of guys isn't going to necessarily get you where you want to be, even if you have all the surplus value in the world. That might have been a weird analogy, but I hope that kind of that kind of tracks that, you know, at the end of the day, they still want to win baseball games. And just because by surplus value, maybe Aaron Judge is getting paid a million more per season than he quote unquote should they still want that 300 and whatever million dollars worth of field value that he's going to provide for them. They still want that five to six to seven to eight wins a year that he's projected for. And, you know, they don't, they don't care if, if he's a little bit underwater or they wouldn't care if Soto was being paid at market rate. Like they're still going to want that player on their team so they can win baseball games. Yeah. And it's important to note that these are opposing forces. So they're not just going to overspend like mad, like in the old Steinbrenner days, just to just to win championships with guys with high field value and money be damned. You know, Steve Cohen for the last couple of years kind of tried that. And then he realized, oh, <laughs> that doesn't work. So there's always kind of a push and a pull between wanting to win and managing your, your I'm going to use the word assets, even though that's not the right word. I mean, you use your assets carefully because it gives you the flexibility to do other moves. And that's what the Padres are doing, saving money, and they give them flexibility to make other moves. And that's what GMs do. It's a dance that they do. They have to, because they're given a budget from their owners and they have a plan that they have to work to. So they're, they're managing to a budget and a plan. So they can't just spend wildly on field value. So everyone knows that, even Stephen Cohen, the biggest you know billionaire in the game, knows that. So... Um, so for the most part, that's why surplus value works because it adheres to that sort of balance between, you know, uh, field value and salary. So that surplus value is largely what dictates it, but there's always variance. There's always sometimes a situation where, okay, we got to win. So we're going for the field value. And you see this sometimes the deadline where somebody just needs a player and it's the only op opportunity to get that player. And so they're going to overpay a little bit. That's fine. That's just an example of the dance where the field value is taking a little bit more precedent over the surplus. We get that. We're still not going to change our model for it because we can't quantify it. But for the most part, we're fine with the surplus model being the dominant form. Yeah, exactly. I want to take one minute just to mention Trent Grisham's name since he hasn't come up for us much at all. Oh, the forgotten man. <laughs> yeah. So he was treated in the media and I think by a lot of fans as well as kind of just a contract baggage type thing here 
and, you know, oh, helping the Padres clear more salary. And I understand where that's coming from to an extent. You know, he was expected to earn about $5 million in arbitration, and next year that probably jumps up to like the 8 or $9 million range. Um, but we still had Trent Grisham at $10.1 million in surplus. And that's because, A, he is an excellent center field defender, and B, he brings some speed and some offensive potential to the table that, you know, maybe a guy like Manuel Margot at this stage in his career doesn't. So he's not just, you know, I guess like an empty glove. You know, he's not just this glove-only, fourth, fifth outfielder, defensive replacement, going to bat 150 for you type. Um, I, I know his last season or two hasn't been the prettiest from an offensive standpoint, but there's there's something in the tank there. I, at least the model believes so. And I think there's reason to believe that the Yankees saw him as a positive value as well and not just some you know, salary offset yeah. or anything like that. Like he's, he's a, dare I say like a Brett Gardner light for them, like nowhere near the, the peak of Brett Gardner, obviously, but they've been missing that kind of player for a while that they can really trust to go stand in center field for either a spot start or for the second half of a game so that judge doesn't have to go out there. Or I guess uh, we'll, we'll get to Alex Verdugo in a minute here. Um, they value that they value a hitter from the left side to kind of help balance their lineup a bit. His speed is something that they've been missing in recent years. Like I think he's a good fit for them and a good baseball player, even if he doesn't hit all that well. And I think there's a chance he could hit a little bit better than he has. And especially, you know, short porch, maybe he taps into that a little bit. I, I think there's reasons to like Grisham here. I agree. Um, he's always had this, some combination of defense and some and enough. If you dig into the metrics, you'll see there's more potential with his bat. If you just look at the, yes, I know the batting average was under 200, and then that's not great. And it's been, you know, not great for a while. But the other parts of his offensive game are a little subtle. You know, he does hit the ball hard. He does hit home runs. I took my youngest into a game where he hit a bomb. And, you know, so so he's got that potential, to your point in addition to bring the defense, he's also the only true center fielder that the Yankees have now. And I have a hard time envisioning Aaron Judge playing 162 games in center. I just I can't see it. So I think they're going to mix the match a little bit. And I think Grisham's going to get a lot of playing time. He's going he's a two-war player, typically, between the combination of the offense that he does provide and the great defense. So, And you see, like, you'll see rumors in the news about Michael A. Taylor having a lot of interest. And there's another guy that's excellent defensive. The bat's always been kind of questionable. Same kind of player. So people, Mark, the market will pay. And he got, like, $10 million this last year. So the market will pay for that. And so that's not nothing. I agree. Yeah. When you get onto like the low, low end, like, you know, you're, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel for an Adam angle or a Billy Hamilton or, or something like yeah. that. Then yeah, that that's the, you know, you know, they're not going to hit and maybe they were elite center fielder defenders when they're prime. And now that they're on the wrong side of 30, that's taken a step back. And, and you know, you know that they're kind of the 26th man on the roster if they make it. Um, the market does not pay for that, obviously, but that's not what we're talking about here with Grisham or with Taylor. These are guys who can, you know, are, are they going to be a below average hitter? Probably, but are they going to be an absolute embarrassment in the lineup? No, and they're going to really contribute on that other side of the ball. Um, last thing I want to mention here is I want to give a shout out to user Cat, who won our trade proposal competition for the Soto trade here. Um, as a reminder, we have an ongoing trade proposal competition throughout the off season. 
where we identified a handful of the top trade candidates available and basically for, for front office and GM level subscribers, uh, you make your trade proposals, including these players throughout the off season. And we're going to score them once a trade goes through based on whether you got the correct destination team. Uh, that's, that's worth five points. And then 10 points for each correct player that's involved in the, in the trade that you predicted. And so for Soto, this was one of the biggest ones. Uh, he, he was arguably the biggest trade candidate this off season. And this user, Lennon Cat, pretty much nailed it. Um, so they actually used the GM override feature to push this one through to the trade board, which is how it was posted despite, you know, being considered an overpay. Um, so they got Grisham and Soto right on the Yankee side. And then on the return side, they got Michael King, Randy Vasquez, Joni Brito, Andrew Thorpe correct. Um, the only parts that they were kind of off on were they had Clark Schmidt included. Uh, which really pushed the value over the edge. Um, they had some cash included, uh, which did not happen in the real trade, and they did not have Higashioka in here. But otherwise, um, pretty pretty well done. And I believe this was based somewhat off of a Bob Nightingale report, but still, yeah. they, they put all the all the so, pieces into the trade together and, and kind of predicted it. Yeah, it should be noted that we have a 48-hour kind of limit so the trade happened on december 6th so anything before like out and up to december 4th pretty much at whatever time that was um you know is what we considered so obviously if the rumors are flying on december 6th that it's this package then those don't count <laughs> it has to be at least two days beforehand and we know there were a lot of rumors flying around at that point as well and maybe that's a factor here but nonetheless credit to Lenin cat for getting this one uh mostly right Yep, and this competition is going to be going on throughout the off-season, contest, competition, whatever you'd like yep. to call it. Mm -hmm. um, so plenty of time to jump in, grab a subscription, and post your trade proposals for guys like Willie Adamez and Bo Bichette and Dylan Cease, Tyler Glass now, Corbin Burns, Max Kepler. Uh, if, you're, if you're really feeling crazy, Mike Trout's name is on this list just in case. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, when we made the list, it was like, yeah, sure, maybe. <laughs> And and who knows? I, yeah. I bet they were hoping to bring Otani back. I, I'm not I'm not going to count it out quite yet, even if they said that you yeah. should. Um, right. Uh, let's uh, if if you don't have anything else to add here on Soto, I on. think we can move on to yep. some of the other trades. Mm -hmm. Cool. So let's, as I alluded to Alex Verdugo a moment ago, uh, we had a, a big rivalry trade go through. Um, the Yankees acquired Alex Verdugo from the Red Sox in exchange for three pitchers. It's reliever Greg Weissert and uh, minor leaguers Richard Fitz and Nicholas Judas. And I need to pull up the trade. Uh, we had Verdugo at $4.8 in median trade value in his last year of team control. And in the return, we had Fitz at 2.1, Weissert at 0.8, and Judas not yet in the system, but probably in that territory as well as kind of a, a fringe lottery ticket type prospect on his end. Um, so this one is accepted by the model, fair deal, you know, maybe just a tad light in the in the package going to the Red Sox, but nothing nothing crazy. It's well within our margin of error. Um, this was kind of a precursor to the Soto deal, and so there was some speculation that oh, maybe they're flipping Verdugo to the Padres to kind of cover that corner outfield spot. Or, you know, oh, maybe this is kind of consolation in case the Blue Jays get Soto, so they at least have somebody. Uh, but I think the way it works out instead, now that Soto is on board as well, is kind of like we were saying with Grisham. It's just another left-handed bat. 
Verdugo's nothing special. He's been highly touted as a prospect, and he was seen as a guy with a lot of upside for a while, and now he's just kind of he's kind of that Andrew Benintendi archetype of, you know, does everything kind of okay, but doesn't do anything all that great. So he's like a, he's a decent defender in the corner outfield. He's got a little bit of power, but not a ton, like some on base ability, but nothing like spectacular. He's just kind of a, a, I guess like steady Eddie, like one to two win player out in the corner outfield with maybe a little bit of upside beyond that. Um, And that's, that's the type of player that, the Yankees will take at this point to kind of lengthen out that lineup. Uh, there was a lot of periods, a lot of periods of time the last two years where the lineup in there was really just looking like Glaber Torres and Aaron judge, and then seven scrubs. And you can see a pretty concerted effort here by the Yankees to change that, to make a, make a real difference here. And, you know, if Alex Verdugo is batting second for you, I don't think your lineup is the way you want it to be, but if he's down in like that six, seven, eight area, I think it's an indicator of how deep your lineup is. And I think that's kind of what they're going for. Yeah. This one, at first it was a little bit of a head scratcher, especially since it happened before the Soto trade, because people were thinking, Oh no, we're not getting Soto. So this is sort of our second best option. Uh, But no, it turns out they got both of them. And, you know, I actually, I often find myself defending Verdugo because on paper, he looks pretty good. He's got a good swing. He's got a great eye. He walks a lot on base percentage is good. Uh, He makes some good catches in the field. So he's decent from a feeling standpoint. But, you, you know, you look at his, you know, seasons and he's just like never quite put it together in one year with all the components humming at once. It's always been a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And that's okay. But he's, that's why he's not a star because he's never like totally delivered the whole thing. Now, the other thing they might be banking on in New York is this is his upcoming, this is his last year before free agency, his walk year. And oftentimes, players in their walk year uh, put up better numbers because they're highly motivated to do so. So, who knows? You might get a little bit more from Verdugo this year in New York than you might have otherwise. Um, the other thing is um, he did have a re- bit of a reputation for being uh, off the field issues. Uh, and so maybe there's speculation that he and Joey Cora didn't get along and this was telegraphed. And so the turn, the return came up slightly light, maybe because everyone knew Boston was trying to get rid of him for clubhouse reasons. I'm not sure how much I buy into that, but I just want to acknowledge that that could have been a factor. Um, but it's, you know, it's fairish deal anyway, so it doesn't really matter. As far as I know, he's on good terms with Joey Cora, but I think he might have some issues here and there with Alex. (laughs) Did I say Joey? Um, Sorry. Yeah, (laughs) that one slipped through. Um, but yeah, that, that certainly could have been a consideration there. Um, he just kind of had a real up and down tenure with the Red Sox. It seemed like things were done there. Um, from what I've seen, the Yankees fan reaction, you know, even after the Soto trade and, and knowing that this wasn't all they were getting. The, the reaction has still been kind of tepid here, and I think that's that's somewhat justified. Um, but yeah, kind of kind of like I was saying earlier, like you, you can do a lot worse in the back half of your lineup. Um, he's still young. He's a guy who's known to kind of have some of that fire to him and, and might play with a chip on his shoulder, especially being traded to a division rival like this. You know, it might be what it takes to get him going a little bit and get him to be a really solidly above average contributor. And... I think it's worth the shot, especially, you know, he's not making a ton of money and it didn't cost them a ton in a trade, just some kind of fringy pitchers. So, yeah, I I don't hate it for them at all. Yeah. So now the Yankees have four, you know, reasonably good outfielders, at least the the low bar here is probably Verdugo. So, um, 
you know, or you know, you'd argue that between Vertigo and Grisham, but they've they've got pluses either way. So the Yankees have definitely improved their outfield, and it looks set now. So good for them. Yeah. And this one, I do want to give a big shout out to user Miss Dejuba, uh, longtime user. Uh, she actually, you know, didn't didn't quite nail the trade and the names involved here, but I don't think anybody really saw right? Verdugo going to the Yankees. <laughs> I think it was a shock to everyone, and yeah. Miss Dejuba did so. So good for her. Congratulations. Um, right. In her deal, she did have Clay Holmes as the return for the Red Sox, which I think. Uh, you know, the the value for Holmes was at 5.5 compared to 4.8 for Verdugo. And, you know, within our normal margin of error there, but I don't think that's necessarily something the Yankees would have been interested in. Um, I don't think they wanted Verdugo quite that bad and were more looking to move some of their fringier players on the roster, you know, some of their pitching depth for him rather than one of their top relievers. Uh, but still, just getting the fit itself when... Nobody else really saw that coming is kind of a huge win. So so congrats for predicting that one. Yeah, congrats, Ms. Dejupa. Cool. Let's move on to the next deal here. Uh, I say deal. This this is a behemoth of a series of transactions. Um, Alex okay. Anthopoulos put on his Jerry DePoto hat and said, let's let's start cooking. Um, <laughs> we're going to start with the, the headlining deal here. The Braves acquired outfielder Jared Kelnick, who we had at 19.4 million in trade value, alongside left-handed pitcher Marco Gonz- Marcos Gonzalez at 8.8 million. That uh, is Marco Gonzalez. I typoed in the tweet. Uh, negative 8.8 million in surplus. Yep. Yes, yes, yes. Negative 8.8. Uh, first baseman Evan White at negative 13.6 in cash, which was reportedly 4.5 million. Uh, that package coming from the Seattle Mariners in exchange for right-handed pitchers Cole Phillips at 3.2 and Jackson Cower at 0.0. Uh, the deal was accepted by our model. This one was real close. I think it was, yeah, it ended up being $1.5 million in surplus going to Atlanta and $3.2 million in surplus going to Seattle. So despite all the moving parts, despite all the cash, and despite like how difficult you would expect it to be to model Jared Kelnick, given how high he was rated as a prospect and how weird his major league career has been since then, I would consider this a pretty big win for the model. So that's, that's my, you know, yeah. <laughs> looking back on it, that's the first thing that, that really stands out to me is like, you know, maybe it's easy enough to view Evan white as a zero for field value and his contract is totally underwater. That's, that's kind of an easy one. It's not hard to guess that one, but a little harder to put a, a pin on exactly where Marco Gonzalez's value is and even harder to figure out where Kelnick is. So the model did really, really well on this one, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you look at it, it's clearly uh, Alex Anthopoulos, the Braves GM, uh, buying Jared Kelnick by taking on two bad contracts. And so there again, it's a perfect example of surplus value. You can have the positive of Kelnick offset the negatives of the other two and it works out just fine on paper and that's what you know so that's how most trades i mean this is an example of an unusual one because it's like a positive offsetting a negative but those are fun to to play around with on our site too a lot of our users do that yeah and i i think you know in a normal episode this trade would be the headliner and we'd spend probably a half hour on it uh, but since we had so many other significant transactions this time we don't really have the time to give this one that it maybe deserves 
Uh, but the good news is we're going to be talking about the Braves and some of their kind of fallout from this for the next few minutes for sure. So let's just take a quick minute first to talk about what the hell's going on in Seattle. Uh, they they don't seem to have any money. Um, and I think we've we've gotten some more reporting about some significant concerns with their own uh, TV RSN deal. Um, I don't know if Root Sports is, is owned by the Mariners or if that's just their kind of local network there. Um, but there are some concerns there, and it's a scenario where it's it's not like the Bally scenario where yes, teams are kind of getting screwed over by it, but MLB is backing them up and and at least covering some of those finances and and broadcasting those games for them. Uh, that's not the same scenario in Seattle. They don't quite have that fallback that the Bally teams have. So their finances are a concern. They're trying to contend still, but we already saw them shed salary in the Eugenio Suarez trade. And now they're giving up, you know, not, not their top hitter, but a guy you really expected to be in the top half of their lineup in Kelnick. And he looked at times last year, like he was taking steps forward and being a positive offensive contributor. They gave him up and all five years of his team control just to shed cash and add a couple of kind of fringy lottery ticket type arms. So Mm. it's, a really it continues to be a really concerning off season in Seattle. They kind of just don't have a lineup right now. And you figure, you know, the, they're, they're setting up to trade a pitcher for some offense at some point here. Um, but they're then going to have to backfill that pitcher. And I think they need a lot more than just the one or two bats they could get in a trade like that. So they really have their work cut out for them the rest of the way. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how else to put it, but it's clearly a pattern with Jerry DePoto. Jerry DePoto. Um, now, we'll see at the end of the offseason how it all shakes out. Maybe it's this is just a means to an end. We're shutting the contracts. We're creating a little bit more flexibility so we can maybe make a couple more deals in free agency. But one thing I would point out, it's really hard for the Mariners to woo free agents. Because um, one of the re- and this is a very practical reason, but I've seen it mentioned a lot, is that they have the most travel time of any other team. They're stuck over there in the corner of the country in the Pacific Northwest. Beautiful city. I've lived there. But it's hard to fly to all the other places, right? So if you're a free agent, you're like, okay, do I really want to be on a plane that much? That's the negative that they always have to kind of deal with. And so the reason why DePoto has a reputation for being, you know, quote, cool, Trader Jerry's because that's his main way of, of you know, transacting you know, to getting that roster where it should be. So I wouldn't be surprised if he starts to add to it and with, you know, with replacing some of the pieces. I'm a little bit surprised that they gave up Kellenic at this point when he was starting to show signs of turning the corner with five years of control. Uh, but you got to do what you got to do, I guess. Yeah. And just looking at kind of their options here. Um, so, so their current five-man rotation, Luis Castillo, George Kirby, Logan Gilbert, Brian Wu, Bryce Miller. You certainly don't expect them to trade Castillo. He's their ace. He's locked up long-term. I think that's a guy they want to build around. And, and you could really say something similar about Kirby and Gilbert. Those two are young studs. That's a really strong one, two, three. Um, if you want a big return in a trade, Kirby or Gilbert would be the way to go. We have Kirby at 91.1 and Gilbert at 65.9. So that's like blockbuster territory if one of those guys gets traded. Um, But seems highly unlikely. The two guys that seem more likely are Bryce Miller at 25.9 and Brian Wu at 28.2. And they both have all six years of control left. They are kind of more recent pop-up prospects. And 
really look like they're solid starting pitchers and they're kind of penciled in as the four and five right now. So you look at, you know, maybe they're looking at trading one of those guys for a hitter, but with those two guys kind of in that mid to high twenties range, that's not exactly a spot where you're going to trade them for multiple good hitters. And especially knowing that the Mariners are going to be targeting younger cost controlled guys and not, you know, uh, a veteran who's only got two two million in surplus because he's making ten million, but is a, a quality hitter. Like that's not the type of guy that they would be targeting in one of those trades. They'd be looking for young guys, and that will kind of eat up that surplus quick. So it's kind of hard to see them trading one of those guys and rolling into next season with the current lineup they have plus a bat or two. Like they need a lot to be done there. So I I'm intrigued to see how they get that done the one like kind of back of my mind possibility here is there's been a lot of buzz about Blake Snell and the Mariners since he is from Seattle and maybe that's not an area where they you know maybe that's not the top of their list is splurging for another pitcher there but if there is room for some sort of like a hometown discount there like it seems like Snell really wants to pitch there and maybe they get him a little bit below market rate and then if you are starting your rotation with Castillo and Snell, maybe you do kind of have some flexibility to move a Kirby or a yeah. Gilbert in like a real blockbuster deal. And, you know, just to pull, you know, a random team out of a hat, like maybe, I don't know, the Los Angeles Dodgers. <laughs> um, you look at like James Outman or Gavin Lux or Diego Cartaya. Like these are, you know, impact offensive players that are young and in their pre-arb years still. Uh, Gavin Lux actually just now entering arbitration and could be kind of the core of one of those blockbuster trades and could actually provide a cheap improvement to the Mariners lineup. So there's like 17 different ifs that I just said said in there. (laughs) Like this is a pure hypothetical fantasy scenario, but like that's really the only path I see to building a real lineup out of this team the way it stands right now. Yeah, the other factor is Robbie Ray is going to come back mid-season probably uh, after his surgery, and uh, so he'll add to that rotation. Now, granted, Robbie Ray has been up and down all, all through his career, and he's getting older, and his contract is underwater clearly. But, um, you know, he could be something, like a deadline type of acquisition in a way when he comes back, so that might give them a little flexibility too. So in other words, they have a little bit more rotation depth. So, and that's why everyone's speculating that they're probably going to trade one of the young guys. Now, the other thing to keep an eye on is, so uh, Miller and Wu are in the 20s because they've only just sort of popped up. Like, they weren't, you know, on prospect lists for a while, but they started to pop up. And we've talked a bit about Seattle really does have a pitching factor. They have figured something out. We've talked about it in context with the relievers, but you should mention they've developed Gilbert, they've developed Kirby, and now these two guys. There's definitely a good thing going on there with pitching in Seattle. So if you look at it like, you know, kind of like what Cleveland does, trade one of those, you know, from your pitching factory because you can always develop somebody else in the pitching factory, then you've got a surplus from which to deal. So I think it makes sense. But I think I wanted to say Wu and Miller um, haven't yet established themselves as much as Kirby and Gilbert have. So that's why they're lower. And so, but there may be some upside there as well. So teams are looking at those guys thinking, okay, we've got six years of one of those guys could be something. Um, So they won't get as much back for them, but that's also why I wouldn't be surprised if a guy like Gilbert was moved and you get a ton of big pieces back. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm definitely keeping a close eye there. 
Um, the one last thing I want to mention there is in a lot of places I've seen Emerson Hancock's name mentioned kind of in the same sentence as Wu and Miller. And that's just not how it looks from, from a modeling perspective right. and from just kind of an objective perspective there. We have him at 3.8 in surplus, which is much, much further down than Miller and Wu. Um, kind of as a fringe guy. He's a he was a bigger prospect than either of those two were, and and was a big prospect for a while. But it hasn't quite come together, and he's kind of taken a step back the last couple seasons, and so he's not really seen as much more than kind of a, a fringe like upside play. He's not he's nowhere near as established or exciting as a Wu or a Miller. There's there's been a lot of health risk with Hancock too. He's had soldier issues, shoulder issues, excuse me, um, and that scares teams away. And it, it's clearly affected his performance too. So, yeah, it's not a pretty picture there at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I think uh, shockingly nobody predicted this trade, so I think we can move on <laughs> down the down the list of the subsequent transactions from the Brave side here. Uh, first, they flipped Marco Gonzalez to the Pirates. Um, they they broadcasted pretty much when they when they made the Kelnick trade. The Braves broadcasted that yeah, Marco Gonzalez is not going to pitch for us. He's going to be flipped right away. Um, they sent Gonzalez, who again was at negative eight point eight, um, and cash, which was reportedly around nine point two five million, uh, to those Pirates in exchange for a player to be named later. So that puts the positive surplus heading to Pittsburgh at point three. And so it, it makes sense that that's just a player to be named later type of return, not expecting that to be any kind of substantial name. And in total, that saves the Braves about $3 million-ish from Gonzalez's contract that now is going to be uh, headed to the Pirates. So I don't think there's a whole lot to this other than the Pirates are covering some innings. The the Braves are offloading a little bit of this salary that they paid, or a little bit of this contract that they had taken on in order to add Kelnick. Uh, but do you have anything additional to add there or, or do you want to move to the next step um no i think it's it clearly turned out fair our numbers are very close so so that one's good cool uh now this next part of the deal very weird and like very much caught us off guard uh so the braves flipped evan white you know after after passing evan white through out white outright waivers so sending him back down to triple a getting him off the 40-man roster uh, they traded him along with left-handed reliever Tyler Thomas. Uh, Thomas was not yet in the system. Evan White, again, at negative 13.6. Traded those two to the Angels in exchange for catcher Max Stassi at negative 4.8 and infielder David Fletcher at negative 14. So this one, there's a bit of a gap there in, in surplus, you know, about $5 million, um, before you account for Thomas, who's likely to be in that, like, 0 0.1, 0 0.2 type range. Um, so... This one does get accepted by the model. Moderate overpay is what it comes through as by the Braves because we have them taking on more money in this deal as well as more underwater, you know, under surplus value. Um, but I, I, we can't really view this one out of context either. There is a, a subsequent move that kind of helps resolve this a little bit. Um, but, but let's pause and look at this one because there's, there's some moving parts here as well. Um, <laughs> I'm stumbling over my words now because all of the, the contracts and cash changing hands in this series of deals um, was confusing enough to try and figure out in real time. And now that I'm trying to recap it, I'm getting lost again. Yeah, all so, right. so let's pause. 
Okay. All right. So you're not the only one. Everyone was like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> what it's all it's all about moving negative contracts and money and where is the money going, right? It's almost like a detective game. And so our friend Ethan Houlihan, who posts a lot about contracts, is a Pirates fan. You know, he he jumped into the fray on Twitter trying to figure it out. Uh, he's a because he's a Pirates fan. He was trying to figure out how much money was being sent originally um, to the Pirates from the Braves for the Marco Gonzalez. But then he got involved in like, okay, what about this one? And then you know he's reading the fine print of the CBT, and it's it's I don't know, I don't even understand it. And anyway, it, there's a whole sub thread that was very um, math mathy wonky. Um, but um, look, at the point, at the end of the day, I think this, look, here's what happened. The Braves bought Kellenic by taking on two bad contracts. They then flipped one of the contracts to the Pirates, threw in some cash to make it even. And then they flipped the other one to the Angels um, and took on two more bad contracts. And you're about to say, okay, now what's next? And then they're going to throw another one of those contracts away and keep one last bad contract. That's the essence of what's going on here. Right. So... I think the way to look at this is Evan White, you know, sorry, Evan, I'm sure you're a great guy. You looked like a fun prospect at one point, but at this stage in his career, he's pure dead money until he proves otherwise. You know, you're not anticipating Evan White to be a contributor in any way for your big league team. And that's why he was outrighted through with, with no concern whatsoever. And so from the Braves perspective, he's kind of just dead money for them. They decided instead to swap him to the Angels and get Stassi and Fletcher back. Stassi does have a little bit of field value, um, a couple millions worth, uh, between like one and a half and two million, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, and so they figured we could go flip him and kind of recoup some money that way, maybe get a, a player to be named later as well. And that is, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and <laughs> stop bearing the lead. That's what they ended up doing. Uh, they flipped him to the White Sox. We don't know yet the specifics of how much cash is involved it was reported that it's the majority of stassi's seven million salary which does track since we have him about five million underwater so if they're paying somewhere in that five to six million range then that makes it a fair deal for uh, the player to be named later so that's that closes the book on stassi and then the last part of this deal is david fletcher where we have him at negative 14 i think you could argue that he has some version of field value that he has some utility to still provide to a team as a plus infield defender with really high contact rates you know no thump behind that whatsoever so teams are you know for a while he was able to kind of scratch by but in recent years teams have been kind of knocking the bat out of his hands but theoretically there's still some sort of value to a bench infielder with a plus glove who's going to go up and put the ball in play and i think that's what the braves are seeing and so even if they're taking on additional you know, negative surplus and technically kind of going in the wrong direction. This kind of circles back to our earlier discussion about field value. They're, they're seeing a little bit of potential for field value here. He can fit a role on their team that they need filled because they traded Nicky Lopez earlier this offseason, and he was going to be their backup infielder, and so that spot on their roster was open. And so all of this shuffling is, like you said, it's buying Kelnick and then moving those additional pieces around to either save a couple bucks here and there, like they are with Stassi and Gonzalez, or turn that negative contract of White into a similar negative contract that they think can actually contribute in some small way to their big league team. Um, do I have that right? Is there anything <laughs> yes, you want to add? Yes, <laughs> that's it. That's all you really need to know. The math is wonky. And it gets into this really arcane stuff of like when you send cash in one deal, 
does it attach to a player like it originally when the Seattle uh, sent cash to the deal that included Gonzalez and White? Was it attached to White? Was it attached to Gonzalez or none of the above? And then, you know, subsequent moves were like, where's the cash? It's like it's like a shell game. So who knows? It doesn't really matter. It's all it all makes sense uh, on a certain logical level. So, I'm, I, yeah. OK, <laughs> cool. Let's let's move past that and never think about that series of transactions. Ever Please again, don't. Shall we? <laughs> right. Um, okay, the Red Sox reported, uh, not reportedly, this is official now. The Red Sox acquired outfielder Tyler O'Neill at $5.7 million in surplus from the Cardinals in exchange for right-handed pitchers Nick Robertson at one6 and Victor Santos at 0. 0.4. Um, bit of a gap there. It's accepted as a minor overpay by the Cardinals or a minor underpay by Boston, depending on how you want to look at it. But this amounts to a player in Tyler O'Neill, you know, it's honestly not too different from the Verdugo scenario. It's a guy who's had some unrest with his previous team and in his final year of team control has had kind of an up and down career and the Red Sox are making this change of scenery upside play for him. And I think it's a good one. I think I like O'Neill's upside more than I like Verdugo's. He is fast. He has big power. He strikes out a lot. He plays solid defense um, he's more of that archetype, whereas, like you said before, Verdugo is the kind of steady Eddie, like on-base contact, not a lot of pop, uh, not not going to be flashy in any way, but just kind of like fills the lineup spot type of player, type of archetype, whereas O'Neill can be boom or bust. He was a five and a half win player in 2021 because all of the stars aligned, and since then he just hasn't quite hit the ball enough or hit it with enough authority to to really recoup that production. But you figure... At worst, you're having a guy with some pop and a good glove, and that's going to be and, and from the right side, which was important for them because they had a very left-handed heavy outfield alignment. Um, so they they add a right-handed hitting complement to that with some speed and power and a good amount of upside. And all it costs them is two real fringe pitchers, one of which Robertson was actually their main return for Kike Hernandez at the trade deadline. So you turned a guy who was one of the worst players in baseball by wins above replacement at the trade deadline. And, you know, you ate some of his contract, turned him into a minor league reliever. And Robertson's value didn't really change much from the deadline to now. It's not like he came up and just blew everybody away for two months and now they're selling high. Like, he's still just kind of this depth reliever type. And now he's getting flipped for a guy with much more upside and a much clearer role on the 2024 team than Hernandez had. So I think it's a pretty... Solid series of events. Um, you can't necessarily say it was always planned that way because Bloom made the first move and Craig Breslow made the second one. But I think overall it works out pretty well in Boston's favor. Um, and as far as kind of explaining the value gap here, I think it's just a lack of leverage from the Cardinals. They've been really broadcasting for a while now that O'Neill is on the block, that he's one of the odd guys out in their crowded outfield there, and that they have had their very public disagreements with him. So I think... Everyone in the league knew that he was the guy they wanted to trade. And so why are you going to offer him a solid prospect or anything if you know that they're just trying to get him out of town however they can? So I, I think that does a lot of the work of explaining the gap in value. Totally. And they basically held up a for sale best offer sign on O'Neill, and everybody knew it. And it's been going on for a while now. And so they were getting underbid quite a bit and eventually just got to the point where, okay, fine, we'll take that one. And they basically just, from a Red Sox perspective, they swapped for Dugo for 
O'Neill in terms of, but I, I do agree with you that I think O'Neill has a little bit more upside. I mentioned earlier that Verdugo's in his walk year, um, but I think that's true for O'Neill as well. Last time I checked, um, so you may get that sort of package coming together. And he did have that five and a half four season a couple of years ago, so you know there's something there. And he's still not old, so you know he's still a player who can piece it together in his prime. So uh, yeah, I like it for Boston. Yeah, and I, I think I could give a little bit more to that, but I think we got to get moving on these. We are coming close yep. on time, and we're barely wrapping up the trades. Uh, <laughs> just going to rattle off three minor ones. Uh, the Red hang, Sox hang on, hang on. Hang on. One more piece of business, which is the contest winner for the Tyler O'Neill trade. That's um, right. I almost missed that. Yeah, I just want to sort of do that while we, while we have a chance. Yes, uh, and it was, uh, once again, Mr. Juba, right. who, <laughs> again, kind of, it, there was maybe a little bit more direction on this one. You know, the, the Red Sox were a bit more vocal about wanting to add specifically a right-handed hitting outfielder, and there weren't quite as many of those on the market, and so maybe a bit of an easier connection there. But still, Mr. Juba was the only one who uh, properly predicted that O'Neill would go to the Red Sox. In exchange, she had Brian Mehta, starting pitching prospect, going to the Cardinals, but he was at 2.3, and the combined package that actually was traded for O'Neill was right around that territory as well. So uh, Juba was really right on the right path with this one. So once again, good job. There you go. Congratulations, Mr. Juba, again. Okay. Yeah, and we'll continue to update on these uh, as trades go through throughout the offseason. Right. Um, very quick minor trades. Uh, the Astros acquired right-handed pitcher Dylan Coleman at zero in median trade value from the Royals in exchange for right-handed pitcher Carlos Mateo. That was a pre-Rule 5 draft roster-clearing type move for the Royals so they can make a selection. Um, not expected. Mateo's not expected to move the needle on this one. It's, it's going to be accepted. And then the Red Sox acquired right-handed pitcher Justin Slayton at $0.9 million in trade value from the Mets in exchange for left-handed pitcher Ryan Ammons, who was not in the system, as well as Cash. And this is a deal where Slayton was originally with Texas. He was selected by the Mets in the Rule 5 draft and then flipped to the Red Sox. So basically, the Mets had an earlier pick than the Red Sox. The Red Sox were worried that Slayton would be selected. So they said, hey, pick him for us, and we'll trade you this guy, Ammons, and some cash. And so goes through. Slayton was a popular Rule 5 potential guy. He seems like he might be an okay reliever, but we'll have to wait and see there. And then the third minor trade that I just want to at least mention, since I I, I believe we mentioned it at the start of the show here, but Christian Bethencourt, uh, catcher, he he is at 1.1 million in median trade value, and he was just traded to the Miami Marlins for cash. And so that's that's within that kind of range to where we expect a cash or player to be named later trade. So that's that's yep. well within our usual margin there as well. And it's yeah. uh, it's it's clearing the roster in Cleveland for another massive move that we'll get to at probably the very end of this episode after we rattle off a bunch of other free agents. Yeah, um, but so. Bethencourt was DFA'd, I believe, so Cleveland got him for free. Mm -hmm. So they made like a 100K profit, so good for them. Yep, yep. Well, cool. Uh, we're going to rattle through all of the free agent signings. Luckily, most of these are pretty minor, and we can just kind of say a few brief words about them and, and where the contract fell and... and call it a day after all that um but let's start with the big ones and, and give them the attention that they deserve uh the d-backs signed left-handed pitcher eduardo, eduardo rodriguez to a four-year 80 million dollar contract with a fifth-year vesting option that could take it up to five years 100 million that you know gut feeling just feels like a really fair price point in today's market for 
who Rodriguez is, mm-hmm. which is kind of a mid rotation number, you know, back like lower half of number twos in the league, or or he's a good number three, kind of in that spot in the rotation where you're not going to be unhappy to see him take the mound on any given day. That's at least the gut feeling. What did the model think about this deal? So there's a option for a fifth year. So it depends on if you do it on for four eighty or five ninety nine, which is where it ends up. It's close. Um, so we had the mo- so the AAV on a five year basis is nineteen point eight. If you figure he's going to get that, and ultimately ninety nine, so it's nineteen point eight. We had five years at twenty one point two, so we're slightly higher, but it's only off by like point oh seven on an AAV basis. So percentage wise, so we're good. Good and. I, I think the fit is as, as clear as day. We just saw the D-backs make a charge all the way to the World Series and come up just short, even though they had quite literally like two and a half starting pitchers in that World Series. It was Zach Gallen, their ace, Merrill Kelly, solid number two, and whatever you make of Brandon Fott, and a whole bunch of question marks after that. So they came into this offseason. You know, there were a couple spots in the lineup that could use improvements, and they went out and did that by adding Eugenio Suarez at third base. But then the next clear spot that they needed was starting pitching. And I like Rodriguez as a guy who's like kind of in the same mold as Merrill Kelly. Like those two, when you look at their numbers, they're they're pretty similar, surprisingly. And it, it just makes for a much more stable middle of the rotation than they had prior to the move. Yeah, I like it for the Diamondbacks as well. I mean, he's an above average starter. You know, and, you know, when he's right, he'll he'll be a workhorse for you. There's still that little question about what happened in 2022 with the AWOL thing, but I'm sure the Diamondbacks have done their due diligence, which is why he's not getting ace numbers in terms of salary, but he's getting good. He's got a good deal, like I said. Yeah, and this feels like a much better buy than their Madison Bumgarner did. Even, hope, even right? at the time, that one felt wrong. And, totally. Uh, yeah, so hopefully this goes a little bit better for them. Uh, the Cincinnati Reds signed, uh, I've always struggled with his name. It's either Heimer or Jimer or Jamer, and I think you hear it pronounced differently everywhere you go. But third baseman, uh, Heimer Candelario, uh, he signs a three-year $45 million deal with a club option that could take it to four years and $60 million. Uh, he's coming off a pretty strong season, uh, especially strong first half with the Nationals and then was traded to the Cubs and finished out the year there. And that made him one of the more desirable hitters on on a pretty weak offensive market. It's a bit strange that he goes to the Reds, who are already quite crowded on the infield. And so that's fueling plenty of speculation about a Jonathan India trade or some other move there. But as it stands, he's going to be a corner infielder slash DH for them. And they're going to kind of shuffle guys around, play play some of them in the corner outfield, even though they've been traditionally infielders and, and make it work. At least that's the line that they're saying, and they've been pretty insistent all offseason that they're not trading India. So we'll have to see how this shakes out the rest of the offseason. But going back to Candelario and the contract, um, it seems like three years and $45 million was right on the money, right? It was. We have three years uh, uh, for Candelario at 44.8. So we are, it's about as close as you're going to get. There's, you can round up to 45 and you're good. So there's really zero difference there. So we feel good about that one. Yeah, definitely. Alrighty. Uh, a definite, a bit of a weird one. And I'm, I'm not sure if we even had him in the model. You'll have to, you'll have to let me know, but Eric Fetty going to the White Sox on a two year, $15 million deal. Uh, Fetty was the KBO MVP last year. Uh, he's he's a former top prospect who didn't really put it together for the Nationals, went overseas and pitched very well. We've seen a lot of these in recent history. You know, Merrill Kelly was that type of guy. Uh, there's also a Josh Lindblom or a, 
or Drew Rusinski on the on the worse end of that. So we'll we'll have to see where Fetty falls in that range. Um, did did we have him in the system in the model yet, or is this just kind of a no. shrug your shoulders and say, yep, that's fair value? Yeah. So I I wouldn't know if I would go that far because not our, so we don't have him in the model because we you know we know that's sort of a little bit of an unusual situation. Yes, I know it's becoming a little bit more clear and a little bit more common, but we just haven't figured out the right way to model. Uh, players coming over from Asia and what that level of competition is like and what they should be getting. So we're going to see that play out with players like Yamamoto and others. Uh, but, um, you know, there's been mixed results, obviously, of, you know, players who have washed out at MLB, gone over there to resurrect their career, do well, and come back. And they get contracts. But a lot of the times, it doesn't work out. And you just mentioned Josh Lindbaum. You know, there's there's many others who just like, you know, it didn't. So like, in it, you know, if you just sort of use common sense, well, they washed out at MLB. What changed over there? Did they find a new pitch? Was it just the level of competition being slightly different? Like, you know, is there a pitching style that they they do over there that worked for Fetty? I don't know. So we, you know, there's too many un, unanswered questions here. I don't blame anybody for giving it a shot. They probably don't want to spend a whole lot of money because they may end up just getting the old Eric Fetty once he's back in MLB, but who knows? So anyway, we have not modeled that. I just want to be super clear about that. Yeah. And, and generally speaking, KBO is treated as between kind of double A AA and triple A talent level, whereas NPB is more at that triple A talent level or, or sometimes like quad A, you can yeah. consider it. And so that kind of goes to what you're saying. You know, a lot of these times there is something you can point to of, oh, the guy added two ticks or he added a new pitch or whatever. But that doesn't necessarily translate one to one to, OK, now he's a successful big, big leaguer that extra mile per hour or that extra pitch or redesigned pitch or whatever might be what they needed to succeed at the KBO level, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to translate. So yeah, we'll definitely have to wait and see. And I don't, uh, I don't fault the model in any way for, for, we just don't have the data points, right? We don't have data points to reference here, whether that's, you know, a solid translation of the KBO and NPB data or, you know, a, a solid track record, solid enough track record of players like this to actually draw meaningful conclusions. So it, it's not something we really can model. Yeah, and we don't want to do it haphazardly as well, you know, because it may be that certain pitchers do well on a certain, you know, with a certain profile, maybe high contact hitters. It may be, you know, you have to really dig into the data to find patterns of what translates and what doesn't. And I'm sure all the MLB teams are doing that. Um, we'll get there eventually, but we're not there yet. Right. Okay, next one is the Astros signing Victor Caratini to a two-year, $12 million deal. Uh, he's going to be their backup catcher along with the young uh, backstop Yaner Diaz, who really broke out last year. Um, he will effectively be replacing Martin Maldonado, who Dusty Baker was absolutely enthralled with, and uh, sometimes to a fault. Uh, but now that Dusty Baker is out and Joe Espada is in, it looks like we're going to actually have a changing of the guard behind the plate for them. And so Caratini, he's just kind of, he he's passed around the league and kind of just been this, you know, steady Eddie backup catcher. So this, this kind of seems like the going rate for it. It's not like, uh, like the Jan Gomes deal a couple years ago that seemed well, like, like well more than a backup catcher should receive. Um, so this seems pretty far in line, but I'd, uh, I'm open to being proven wrong by the model if it, if it says this was <laughs> off in one direction. No, I mean, it's close enough. Um, so we have 
fair value. So he got six million AAV. We have fair value for him at ten point two or five point one million AAV. So that's off by about fifteen percent. So still within our plus and minus twenty percent goal. So it's fine. Um, I will say that the catcher market is dreadful. You know, we're just in this weird period where there's just not a whole lot of good hitting catchers. There's a young crop of them coming up. You mentioned Yanner Diaz. Obviously, Ali Rutschman is the top of that list. But but there's a lot of sort of veteran catchers who are just like, I don't know if they're just tired or they can still kind of play defense. But, you know, I'm sure you're going to mention Austin Hedges in a minute. He still keeps getting deals. Like, there's just not enough on the market. to So, that you know... If you're worth five and you get paid six, no one cares, especially in this market. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> and it is such a rounding error at that point. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> Catcher, we're still improving how how we can evaluate defensive metrics, like like baseball as a whole, like not not us specifically. Um, it's still kind of improving gradually every year on on its evaluation of defensive metrics, especially for catchers. And so this is a rounding error. If you think he's a slightly better framer than the publicly available metrics or something like that, then this deal is like right in line, right? So that, that's all it is, is like a slight difference in opinion, slight rounding error type thing. Um, not quite a slight rounding error, I don't believe, is the Orioles' one-year $13 million deal with Craig Kimbrell. Um, it's actually a $12 million contract for 2024 with a $13 million option for 2025 with a $1 million buyout on it. So $13 million guarantee for the one year. He's going to be their replacement closer since Felix Bautista is out for the year with Tommy John. Uh, but Craig Kimbrell remains an enigma and uh, continues to earn seemingly more money than he deserves um, or, or be traded for more capital than he deserves, I, I should say as well. Um, am I right to guess that the model was not a huge fan of this one? Yeah, look, this is an aging curve situation. Uh, relievers really do tend to fall off in their late 30s. He's going to be 36 next year. So taking into that, that into account, we had fair value for him at 8.2 for one year. And he got 13. So clear miss. Um, you know, good for the Orioles, I guess, for getting a proven closer now that they know their playoff team. Um, but they overpaid for him. I think it's pretty clear. And he's been, you know... I think the the you know very dig into the numbers will say yeah fine but he has been in general decline if you look at if you watch him um, he's not the same Craig Kimbrell he was a few years ago uh, but he's still got some gas left in the tank or at least the Orioles would like you to believe we didn't think so based on our aging curves and 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 the numbers that we crunched but okay whatever yeah I mean it's it's the whole adage of no such thing as a bad one year deal I guess I guess they can take that to heart. Yeah, I mean, they're um, not paying for much else, so you might as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Brewers re-signed Wade Miley. It's a one-year deal, $8.5 million guarantee. That's a, a $7 million salary in year one and a $1.5 million buyout on a $12 million mutual option. So comes out to one year, eight and a half. Uh, he just has found a pretty solid home with the Brewers. They seem to like him there. He's a, a pretty steady presence in the rotation. Never going to be an ace or anything, but he's going to eat innings and probably be a little bit better than the Jordan Lyle types that do that. So good for them, good for him. Uh, what does the model think? So he sent for 8.5 with a few caveats. We had a fair value for him at 9.5. Um, now, there are incentives in his contract that are based on innings pitch that can easily take him to 9.5. He's also uh, one of the other sort of pluses is he gets a uh, $1 million uh, fee if he's traded. So I'm going to call this one fair. <laughs> so, nine, you know, he's going to get 9.5 one way or the other from the way it looks. 
So I think we're good there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, those first two assignment bonus or not assignment of uh, incentives yeah. are at 50 innings pitched and 75 right. innings pitched. And right. I, I think he's a, a lock to make those at least. So, yeah. So we're going to yeah. call that one fair. Yep. Cool. Um, we got a little bit of a string of relievers here. We've got Andrew Chafin, one year deal with the Tigers, goes back to Detroit. Um, it's it's a $4.25 million base salary in 2024 with a bunch of incentives on it and a $6.5 million club option. Uh, total guarantee with the buyout for that club option is $4.75 million for one year. How does that one look? We had him at 5.2. So it's pretty close. It's within, it's like 9%. So we're fine. Yep. And it's it's once again the incentives that, that kind of take you up there. And it yep. looks like they'll be pretty achievable as well. Uh, the Royals sign Will Smith, which means congratulations. You there winning the World Series. Uh, yes. One year deal, $5 million. Um, this is a lefty with a pulse, so I'm assuming $5 million is pretty fair. Yeah, we had him at 4.2 because he's been in decline for a while. Um, so, but it's, you know, <laughs> you can you could easily round that one up too, so it's fine. Yeah, you gotta you gotta pay extra for that postseason experience. Oh, there you that, buying the World Series the trophy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, I'm sure that I'm sure they they mentioned his agent mentioned that. Oh yeah, and it's all you know, it's all the wear on wear and tear on his arm because you know it's so heavy with all the rings weighing it down. It, <laughs> that, that plays a role here. Well, you know, I mean, we're joking about this, but you know, so any team a team with a Will Smith on it has won the World Series four years for the last four years in a row. Of the last three, it's been this guy. <laughs> he's bounced around every time he's on a World Series winner. So who knows? Maybe his luck will continue. I would wager that it won't, but hey, we've been surprised before. <laughs> but, you know, he's probably well, going to get traded. He could get traded. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hang on. He, could, he could do an Aroldis Chapman. There totally. it is. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the Royals do. They, they know what they're doing. You know, he's a trade okay. bait for the deadline. So, yeah, could, <laughs> could keep it going. Um, the Rangers, speaking of. Uh, they signed Kirby Yates to a one-year deal, four and a half million. Um, he was actually pretty okay in his return last year, so I, I think this is a good pickup for them, just just independent of of the value necessarily. But I I am curious to hear what the model thinks. The model thinks he's almost done. He's at one point three, so this is no repay. So it did not like this one. It's off. I, I he did overperform his peripherals, if I do recall last yes, year. Yes, and so. we're big on peripherals as predicted. Yes, models. so. Yeah. Pulling it up right now, he was. But worth you know, 1. it's a one-year 1... contract. To your point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pulling it up right now, he was worth 1.1 B WAR, and and that obviously is off of ERA and not not using some of the peripherals. Negative uh, 0.1 F WAR, because of a 4.48 XERA 4.63 FIP. So that's why. Yeah. 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 So it's and a, he's going to be 37 million dollar. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a four and a half million dollar gamble that he can keep up the smoke and mirrors essentially. Yeah, I mean, his last three years, 2020, zero, 2021, negative 0.2, 2023, negative 0.1. Steamer projects him for 0.1. That's why. <laughs> we have him at 1.3. Yep, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the Angels sign Luis Garcia. Uh, not that one and not that one, the other one. Uh, it's a one-year $4.25 million contract. We don't have him up, and we are running out of time, and we can't uh, we can't be doing all of these, so... That's uh, it's in the in the correct territory it seems, but we will follow up on that next time. Uh, the Angels also signed Adam Simber, one year, one point six five million dollar contract. They're really just filling out the bullpen at this point. Uh, the Mets signed Jorge Lopez, one year, two million dollar guarantee. Uh, the Rays re-signed Chris Devensky, one year, one point one million dollar guarantee. 
anything on any of those last four relievers before we uh, start to wrap up here? Yeah, we had fair value of Lopez at 1.5. He's in for two, so round up, you're fine. Um, and we just got to play a little catch up on the other ones, but I'm sure they'll be okay. Cool. Uh, last two hitters, Nationals, Nick Senzel, one-year $2 million deal. And Guardians, Austin Hedges, as we alluded to earlier, one-year $4 million deal, which led to them trading away uh, Christian Bethencourt. Anything on either of those two? No. Um, Senzel actually is going to be pretty fun. I'll, I'll have to double-check, but um, got to catch up with some paperwork on that one. Hedges just broke today, so we'll, we'll get to that one tomorrow. Cool. Uh, last, very last thing I want to mention here, uh, we talked about Joe Kelly signing last time and we didn't have the dollar value yet. It's been reported at $8 million though, and we had him projected for 7.2. So again, kind of right in That's that right. margin there, maybe, maybe yep. a little bit more than we expected, but, but right around. Yeah, exactly. So it's off by like 10%. So it's okay. And somehow they still have not gotten him onto the 40 man roster. We've, uh, we mentioned this at the start of the episode that, we expected this this hypothetical Dodgers-Yankees deal to clear 40-man space to go through, and our episode went long, and it still has not broken yet. So I, I, I suppose we'll discuss that next episode. Yeah, and the other thing is Joe Kelly wears number 17. Shohei Otani wears number 17. I wonder who's going to get number 17 when they're announced. <laughs> So you're saying that's the holdup for the 40-man deal? Yeah, that's right there. That's probably why he got an extra 800k to give up. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm saying, I'm saying the reason that they haven't officially announced either of those two deals or that 40-man deal is because the deal with Joe Kelly is falling apart right now, John. Oh no! He didn't expect them to give away his number. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, poor Joe Kelly. And we we know how how Joe Kelly's ego can be. (laughs) (laughs) I, I I kid. I I. I'm sure Joe Kelly's a fantastic guy. Yeah. Um, we've had a lot today. We've covered a lot, a lot of good stuff, a lot of good news to get to. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? No, we're good. Sign up for the uh, trade proposal contest. If you want to play, be a subscriber. It's fun. You'll get your name mentioned. Yeah, and I'll add to that. It's the holiday season. BTV merch makes an excellent holiday gift for, for any does. baseball fans you have. It's all real high quality, real good stuff. And if you're a subscriber, you get a nice little discount on it. So highly recommend. Go check that out. Um, Otherwise, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.